You're listening to the 2009 Jack Straw Writers' Programme. Writers' Programme curator Donna Muscolta sat down for an interview with writer Kimon Lieberman. For me, I like to be challenged with things that I can't always understand and maybe have to keep coming back to. So poetry does that for me. I, I like to not always know the answer and maybe keep coming back and need to keep looking for how it challenges my understanding. Poetry is a form of communication, of trying to observe and collect thoughts and bring words together in a way that, from the poet to the reader, communicates something. And I think what's unique about poetry and trying to communicate from one person to another is that you can play around with language and with with the structures and rules that exist in communication and, and leap over them in some ways, change them around. Now you'll hear Kim An reading her work at a live performance at Jack Straw Productions. My proposal for the Jack Straw writers when I was applying to participate had to do with writing poetry about journalistic media, TV, newspapers, radio, internet. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the way that media mediates, how it surrounds us and filters and guides our relationship to the everyday world, to what we understand. And as I was finishing up for the anthology, one of our papers in Seattle stopped printing. You probably all know that the Seattle PI ceased its operations in mid-March, for print anyway, after having been around since the 1880s. So this first poem I'm going to read is a eulogy of sorts for our dearly departed Seattle PI. It's called Post Post Intelligencer. (laughs) Here's the headline. Marmaduke runs amok. In Monday's puddle, a quartered comic section goes to pulp under dog paw after sloppy dog paw, the great oaf and all his off-leash pals gambling down the block, anointing the world with slobber. Heathcliff wonders if the milkman will ever return. B.C. and Dagwood toast to syndicated oblivion. Local and world lie entwined in the rain gutter. Momentary scandals expired. Delivery boys abandon their drizzly morning routes as the blue globe spins its last late-breaking round. Even a storm, we quip, can be weathered down. And if the wreckage amounts to any actual loss, then it's just a caption for someone else's copy desk. But watch for this. On wind gust, one broadsheet takes flight. The columns are a grid of leaded glass, a city of towers, a thousand lives played in concert against the graphite sky. So by day, I'm a high school English teacher, which means that I spend at least a couple months out of my year trying to convince a really skeptical crowd that folks like Shakespeare and all of his old dead writer types are actually relevant and worth reading. You know, what's the point of reading all this iambic pentameter sonity stuff? People don't talk like that anymore. What's the point? Um, So to demonstrate, or I guess attempt to demonstrate, that Shakespeare and his old dead writerly types still have some relevance in our 21st century world, I've been writing a lot of sonnets lately about TV, and this Mm -hmm. is one of them. It's Channel Surfing Sonnet Number 2. Infomercial with famous dead poets. Just insert slab, 
turn knob, shut latch, and behold, it grills, it sears, it roasts. Sizzle mesmerized, you watch ten cuts before catching. The host is captioned, Chef T.S. His sidekick, a fellow in full Whitman bard beard. What better salesman to hawk memory and desire in a flesh-fired appliance? Who else could convince you that poetry's made in Taiwan? And look, isn't that Dickinson mincing onions for the sauce? Stage kitchen so lyrically brazed that you can taste it. Stop rhyming. Reach for your wallet. One of the most egregious stereotypes ever brought to life on film as part of what was called yellow face in Hollywood, akin to blackface, with actors who were white putting on big prosthetic eyelids and painting their faces really thick with yellow face paint. One of the worst of those of that category was this fellow Fu Manchu. You might know him. He's this emperor type. He has a very long mustache, and he wears big brocade robes, and he has long claw-like fingernails, which he clicks and clacks as he plans how he's going to take over the world next, played probably most famously by Boris Karloff in The Mask of Fu Manchu, which puts him on par with folks like Dracula. So a really, really problematic stereotype and one of, the, one of the really popular ones throughout the first half of the 20th century. So this next poem is my attempt to grapple with that particular stereotype. He's been around for a long time. There are still bands and restaurants named Fu Manchu. You still see echoes of him in Star Wars or James Bond. He just won't quit. Totally outdated, completely offensive, but he just won't go away. So this is the flight of Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu has just hopped a transatlantic flight. He's determined to see Paris. He's got grand evil plans for that immodestly buxom city of lovers and lights. But at the moment, he's dozing, exhausted from the fallout of his last unsuccessfully nefarious plot, eyes tilted shut before the seatbelt sign has even dinged or de-illuminated. Seventeen vials of potions stashed in his carry-on attaché. Last decade, he swapped his brocades for pinstripes and trimmed down those dagger-long fingernails. New times demand new fashions, he tells his henchmen, who nod obediently from opposite corners of the room. He does keep the mustache, two black ropes hanging from cheekbone to collar, tail ends twisted neatly to a point. Sentimental, perhaps, and good for the occasional cameo. But real work's been scarce since Hollywood went digital. An endless loop of high-speed car chases, no finer taste for archaeological thievery or imperial banquets. Yellow is a peril of the past, a brittle age, a film strip gone bad. So Fu Manchu now masterminds without pancake makeup or facial prosthetics. If his eyelids still rest heavy, call it habit. Blame the body's stubborn lust for weight and slant. The flight attendants have just passed through the aisle, drink cart laden, grinning at the old man beginning to snore. Once was that the air before him would chill, seize you at the bone marrow, Enter Fu Manchu with a deafening gong, and you, terror-struck, new elaborate torture came next. 
Enter 10 shirtless thugs to escort you to the dungeon where even an unmasked outrage couldn't change your fate. And I'll end on a more personal, less metaphorical note. Much of my book, Breaking the Map, deals with my own heritage as an Amerasian, as a Vietnamese-American on my mother and my grandmother's side. But because I was born and raised in the States, much of what I know about Vietnam and Vietnamese culture was handed down to me through stories that my grandmother and mother would tell me about their experiences in Vietnam, about what it was like to be there and live there. And I guess to tie it back to my project with journalism, I think that might be really at the root of what makes journalistic media so compelling to us in the first place, why we read and listen and watch every day, because it really is just stories that we didn't ourselves experience, but that we feel intimately connected to, in which we see parallels to our own lives and get a sense that this is how we're meant to understand the world. So this last poem is Zuyen Ba, which in Vietnamese means my grandmother's stories. Duckweed. At dawn, I crept over my sleeping brothers and ran to the pond. My mother warned me not to play there, but I danced all day around the brilliant edges. A blue-winged bird called me closer and closer until I slipped and fell in. I was never so scared. I could not swim. Who knows how I scrambled out, but I rushed home from that darkness, silent, curled up on the straw mat, and slept. When I woke, my mother was cooking dinner. Through the steam, she bid me come to her. She touched my hair. It was dry. My face was clean. Then she lifted my shirt and saw a duckweed caught in my navel, and she knew I had been to the pond. Chicken Trick They sold chickens at the market in large wire baskets. I was only a girl then, but I knew some things. Come here, miss, they cried. See how plump this chicken. And I poked the hen under a wing as they held it upside down and nodded, Yes, yes, I'll buy this one. When I reached for my money, they cried, Here, miss, let me tie the legs for you. That was how to carry a chicken home, squawking by the legs. But I knew their tricks. I always tied the legs myself. Otherwise, they would turn away quick to cut the rope. That plump chicken would get dropped back into the basket and switched for a scrawny one. All bones. They cursed after me as I walked home with the best hen. Bet you'll live long, clever girl. Sure, you'll live long. (laughs) Firecrackers. My family was never poor, but I liked to have jobs. One morning, I went to the firecracker factory and watched the women seal gunpowder in bright paper shapes. That looks like fun, I said. Give me something easy to do. They showed me how to twist petals at the corners, just like a real chrysanthemum. They let me crook the beaks of paper birds that flew away when you lit the fuse. So I worked there, folding pink and yellow triangles, until I got bored. After that, I cut lace for French tablecloths. My pockets were always full of coins. Two-plank bridge. Before they thought of cars or trains, men would pull wooden carts through the street, two round poles on their shoulders and passengers behind, like working beasts such strong backs. I rode one home, a long trip from town. We came to a small crossing where the bridge was two planks and the geese cackled below. I offered to get down, but the driver vigorously shook his head, no. So proud, he stepped ahead, not even a wobble. We tumbled straight into the stream. 
The man, the cart, the planks, and me, all of us rolling in goose feathers, soaked black with mud. Mm. Red and gold. I wanted to move to the city, so I opened my own store. Anyone was welcome. I stacked the shelves high with bolts of velvet brocade, sacks of mung bean flour, lacquered wood chairs, even porcelain sinks and bidets for the rich folks. In front was a glass counter full of jewelry, genuine gold. One day, I closed my eyes and sifted my hands through the pile, and the ruby ring slipped right onto my finger. I never took it off again. I have lost much in the years, but never this ring. See how it still shines like new. See how it catches the sunlight. Red as the throat of a bird breaking into song. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2009 curator of this program is Donna Miskolta. Music performed by Matt Weiner and Del Ray and recorded as part of the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure, Tom Stiles, and C.J. Lazenby. Narrator is Amy Brimhall, and executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.